coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. In pillow water is where the channel kind of comes up, up onto a pillow where say, you know, just for argument's sake, say you're coming out of, you know, eight feet of water that comes up on a shelf that's, you know, maybe somewhere between three and a half and six foot depth. The fish come up on that pillow to rest, to kind of chill. That's the water where the swung fly has its name, court. That was George Cook describing the perfect swing water for kings. The Connect Talk title tips and 40 plus years of swing and knowledge today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. One quick and easy way to support this podcast is by clicking through our sponsors' websites. If you get a chance, we've got a bunch of great sponsors, some uh, local uh, small companies that are out there trying to do great stuff. You can click through any of those links that I mentioned here on this podcast and support us by clicking through and checking out what they have to offer at their website. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro-nymphing reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without shoulder burn. Check out Maverick Fly Fishing Stinger and their other Euro-nymph products and support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash maverick right now. That's maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash maverick. Check out the lightest and most unique Euro-nymphing reel right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Dalton at uh, Country Financial, who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets in life are protected. You can check out Dalton right now at wetflyswing.com country and make sure you are protected today. George Cook is back on the podcast today and takes a deep dive into Swing and Flies for Kings. We get the rundown of some of the history around the Connectock River and some of the great Alaskan rivers uh, that you've likely heard about if you've been thinking about a trip up north. We find out when you should be planning your trip if you're focusing on uh, rainbows or kings or any of the other species. We dig into that a little bit, talk about how that looks with the DIY experience versus the lodge. And, uh, and we then we get into the swing game with single-handed rod. We touch on that a little bit, a little bit of the history there, the guy who was a big part of revolutionizing uh, single-hand rods for Chinook. So here we go. The man who originally brought two-handers into the U.S. and started the Spay Revolution. George Cook from State of Spay on Instagram. How's it going today, George? Good, David. Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, Merry Christmas. This is the cool thing about what what we do here. I, I sometimes, you know, I, I left some openings towards the Christmas, but you were like, well, I got an opening on the 24th, and uh, and I love it because I think it shows you your passion for this, right? Not not a lot of people would probably hop on a pre-Christmas deal, and, and we're two people that would. So what, what does that tell people about us? Well, it tells us that we're after it, and yeah. in a few hours, I've got to go cast these new Sage R8 salt rods with one of my dealers oh wow yeah so you're still working you don't you take off what just uh christmas and then you're back to it well i promise to quit at 5 p.m i promise there you go there you go (laughs) well we're starting early in the morning on christmas eve so we're good to go here uh we're gonna dig in you know we've had you on a couple times and 
We've talked about a lot of different things. Uh, today, we're going to dig into another topic that's, um, you know, I think a lot of people are interested in. It's one of those bucket list fish and trips is king salmon, right? Chinook up in Alaska. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to maybe talk about some on some of the, the brands you work with and things like that. But um, let's take us back real quick to uh, uh, an update. So I, the last episode we did was quite a while ago. What have you been up to in the last, I guess it's probably been a year or so, something like that. Well, let's just go with the last month, David. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I had yet another stellar trip down in the uh, Louisiana Marsh. Oh, yeah. was down out of Venice. Managed to hook 40 redfish in a mere three days. Wow. You could probably say I had a horseshoe up my ass. (laughs) Um, I landed eight over 40 inches, including the all-time biggest one I've ever landed which was 41 and a half by 26 and a half. Wow. About a 37 pounder. And uh, it seemed like we were just in big guys virtually daily. And, and it, it just, things came together, which always worries me about how the next trip will go because it tends to level out. Yeah. Right. But then uh, right after that, I was down in the uh, Northern Mexican state of Coahuila on an annual bow hunt where I took multiple whitetail bucks, including one real stellar 12 point with a bow. Hmm. And, um, that brings me to here today with you. Yeah. Wow. So that's it. So basically God, and, and I love the hunting because we've, uh, we've done a couple of little hunting thing, you know, episodes over the years and, uh, but it's something I'm interested in digging more into. So, well, we'll do one. On, yeah. We'll do one on North American deer sometime. I'll keep you busy. Oh, good. Hours, I promise. Good, good. So I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to mark that one down because I would love to dig in. Deer hunting is always a struggle for me and you know, lots of people out there. Um, well, and, and I just looking back at it now. So it was, January uh, of 21. So really, God, it's been almost two years since we've talked, which seems yep. doesn't seem that long. So so in two years, so you got, so when you look back over, I mean, obviously we had the COVID thing going there, but did that, uh, that didn't slow you down too much, right? You're able to kind of get out and you're back to your normal traveling now, or have you cut that down now still? No, we our travel really since, to be honest, and I probably said something about this back when, I tell you, since April of 2020, we actually are traveling at a higher rate than we ever have been. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, whether that's on the fly fishing side of the docket or the hunting side, because I think you remember, David, we we rep Crispy Boots. We rep uh-huh. Stone Glacier out of Bozeman, Montana. So we've got a fair amount of fall, fall goods. Yeah in that theater yep. and um you know we're traveling as much or more i just nice. walk you out and show you my mileage and probably tell the story but that's right that's right who's your mileage what what flight what airline do you have a who do you use well that's with a if that's on alaska i mean i'll show you my mileage on my car oh on your car right right yeah totally but that's um, right. no we're we're very much fully engaged with the dealer network the show scene um I've got a few sports shows on the docket the next mm-hmm. 60 days, Wild Sheep in Reno, the vaunted Portland show, Portland Northwest Sportsman's mm-hmm. Expo down in Portland, which, believe it or not, is the second biggest sports show in the United States. Wow. Only one bigger, the only one bigger is Harrisburg, PA. 
PA. There you go on the other side of the country. I, yeah. I always wondered about that because Portland seems like a good show, and but there's a lot of these shows all around the country. That's amazing. So the the second biggest. Wow. Yeah, it's ungodly busy all five days. Yeah, yeah. Where are you going to be? What do you do at the Portland show? What's your what do you stick around? I'm in, you the, uh, I'm in the crispy boot booth. Okay. It's about a twenty foot booth. We bring the whole kit and caboodle and. Everything you ever wanted to see in hunting boots will be before your eyes. Oh, nice. I, I need to talk to you about that then. My my hunting boots that I have right now are kind of, they're good, but I think I've outgrown them. I, I'm ready for a new pair of boots, so I'm going to have to hit you up. Well, we can, we can fix that, David. All right. <laughs> good stuff. And I think last time at the show, I think I tried to swing by like a number of times, but you had such a, a, a crowd there in front of you. I didn't, I didn't bug you, but I'll, I'll try to hit you up here this next year. Please do. Nice. Well, let, let's dig into a little bit. Let's start us off. Let's get into this Chinook thing because, um, you know, we're going to be heading up there next year doing a trip. And and I know I hear from a lot of people that it's a, a species that people are loving, you know, especially Alaska because it's this giant fish. It's uh, you can get it on the swing, all this stuff. So are you I mean, do you have fond memories of uh, king fishing up in Alaska? Is that something you still, um, you know, you've done recently, you still think about doing or is that something in the past? Well, I, I still go every year. David. Oh, you do? Um, this June, forthcoming June 23, will mark my 40th straight year swinging flies for kings in the 49th state. Wow. Um, and I'll be on the Nishkak, my usual time frame in June, pursuant to whatever the big tides are, because I feel that's a fairly critical issue. Mm. In terms of timing, is to hit the biggest tides within a given within a given period, because it's generally when the biggest swath of those fish will come. Oh, but um, yeah, it'll be forty years of it, and um, you know when you say, you know, thinking back on it, um, I think I think I was in on it at the near peak, mm-hmm. maybe not the peak. I might have been a little late on the peak. Um, I think I would see it on the peak on one river system, two, maybe two, hmm. and probably a little on the backside of a couple others. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, in, in this time frame, uh, the Chinook scene, Kingy, as I affectionately refer to him, yep. has peaked in the state of Alaska. Right, which is, which is a really... Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in the past. It's a really scary thing to think about, you know, because it is Alaska. and you know, But it shows you, again, how, you know, just like in Oregon and some of these places, you know, species, you can't just do anything, right? They're not abundant forever. There's stuff you have to do. So, um, and they're on kind of a downside. What does that, what does that look like? Do you have any idea? Do you, do you see that yearly or do you see lots of ups and downs in, as well? Like, Well, I've seen, you know, in those, you know, virtual 40 years, I've seen uh, I've seen the craziness that went on on the rivers like the Alagnac, the Nishgak. I guided both of those. Hmm. Um, the Connect Talk, which is one of the ones you tend to hear a lot, maybe the most about. I definitely saw that one peak, um, and then various and sundrious other ones. Um, the Golcana being one some of the Susitna drainages, but there's still some inspirational fishing that will occur. Right. You're still going to catch fish 
You're still going to have shots at fish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt. Uh, there's still going to be periods. And those periods are much shorter in duration than they were, you know, even 10 years ago. But it's still there to be had. And basically, your timing has got to be better. You used to be able to look at Kings in Alaska and you could really, you could call it a, you know, a 45 to a 60 day period. And it's still going on in that duration, but there will be more telltale periods, probably two week periods that'll be laying and given rivers when, you know, the best of it to be had will be had in two weeks versus a month. Right, right, right. So if you're looking at, say, you know, you're thinking hitting it sometime in that late June, early July period, right? There's that window in there. So you're saying within that window, if you can time it, instead of just saying, you know, we're going to go on July 5th for 10 days, you might say, well, let's keep it open and we'll go on, a, on like you said, a big tide. Like what are some of the factors that might influence your, your timing within that 60-day window? Well, you know, historic run data is pretty, you know, you can get on, ADF and G Alaska Department of Fish and Game. You can you can go to you know King counts by river, and most of the river systems will have um, counts, and those counts will go back multiple years, and you can easily go look at this stuff. And then if you're if you want to nerd out a little further, you can look at those those counts and then go have yourself a looksy poo at a tide book for that district and start to really see some things occurring. And that would be more on the coast, um, particularly in Bristol Bay in the Bering seaside. So far West of Alaska, it would really show itself in there, those correlations. And to some degree, you know, an upper cook in the, Kenai, Alaska Peninsula, Alaska Peninsula would would saddle up with what's going on in Bristol Bay in terms of those factors. But, you know, it's last year was a really good year for numbers. Um, two of us, Josh Lynn from um, Greater Portland and I did eight days on the Nushgak and I think we hooked 105. Oh, wow. And we, we had some, you know, just every day we were, we were hooking lots of fish, but we didn't see anything over 18 pounds. Oh, right, right, right. So you're not seeing the big guys. And that was something that plagued the whole of Bristol Bay, the Alaska Peninsula last year. And, you mm. know, in a lot of ways, Alaska as a whole, I mean, nevertheless, there were some big fish from various drainages. Yeah. And sometimes those years with big Jack returns, you know, yep. Jack small Kings yep. tends to be, you know, a precursor for a better mature fish year the following year. So we shall see. Right. And a Jack might be, you might see a fish that say like uh 20 inches or 24 inches, a King like that, that size, that's kind of a Jack size. Well, he could be, he could be a super little guy and be 16 inches. Yeah. On up to, you know, 10 pounds, let's call him. And, yeah. um, we saw an enormous amount of them and they're, they're, they're hyper ultra aggressive. 
And so their tendency to strike flies and lures and certainly anything in the bait theater is pretty high. Yeah. Right, right. That's right. Okay. So, and you mentioned the, the Nushgak and the Connect Talk. Um, it sounds like you've been on the Connect Talk. What, talk about that. Let's let's dig into that. We, we might talk about a few of these basins. So is the Nushgak, first of all, is that close to the Connect Talk? Is that in that same area up there? No, the Nushgak is in the, um, in that Dillingham region. Oh, okay. Otherwise known as the Nushgak district. Gotcha. It's a giant, huge, huge river. Uh, it was one of the hardest ones years ago to get figured out with a fly. It was relatively easy to figure out with gear as a guide in the 80s, but it took longer to kind of solve the riddle and that ditch, you know, swinging flies. I've been on that river the last 10 years. Um, prior to that, I was on the Connect Talk for about 22 years as an angler, and then I guided the Nush guided the Alagnac in the 1980s. Um, and, uh, you know, I certainly saw what I b- believe to have been the, the peak on the Connect Talk, you know, when the, when the fish levels were extremely high. You know, the Alaska, I'm sure I've said this to you before, David, but, you know, when you look at king salmon in a, in a global sense, You've got kings, of course, in Alaska. You've got them in Canada. You've got them, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, and Western Idaho. You've got them on the Kamchatka Peninsula, which probably none of us will fish right. anytime soon. No. And you've got them in Chile. You've got some in Argentina, and you definitely have some, believe it or not, in New Zealand. And of all the places the fish that strike the fly by far the best. Alaska is number one, far and away. Mm. Canada, number two. Mm-hmm. I suspect I'd put Kamchatka number three, uh, just based on latitude and, and fish mm-hmm. BC within the species. And then it gets a lot tougher after that. Um, yeah. Catching kings on the West Coast with flies is a specialized thing. There's a handful of guys that are that are you know real pronounced at, at doing it, but it's yeah. no it's those fish are nowhere like those Alaska fish. The Alaska fish, whether they're 500 yards in from the salt, five miles, 50 miles, they eat the fly at the best the best level that global Earth has to offer. Yeah, that's good, and we're gonna dig into that. I want to talk about the take. Because we're gonna do some comparisons between steelhead and things like that, but I let's let's go on the Connect Talk because this is this is a river like you said it's a famous river. People when they hear about Chinook, the Connect Talk comes up. You you fished it for 22 years. Let's take us there because you got some lodges, you got some things going on there. What if somebody was planning a trip and let's just take it to let's just say the trip they're planning is kind of a DIY adventure where they're going to be dropping into the upper watershed um, out of a helicopter or something like that or a plane. And, uh, and then they're going to be floating the connect talk down towards like into the lodge water. So, so talk about that. If you're, if you're, well, first of all, have you ever done that or thought about or heard much of the, those people doing that? Well, yeah, there's typically not going to do that so much for Chinook versus, you know, a flow trip. That's a multi-species thing. Yeah. Multi-species. Yep. Yeah. I mean, those are far more popular. They're far more successful, but yes, 
one could go and do what you're describing, David. And, you know, that, that river system starts at a lake system called Kurgati Lake. And then it, it proceeds to flow for roughly 90 miles down to the village of Quinnahawk, which is most certainly in the bottom end tidewater. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the smart move there for somebody on a DIY is to, number one, have a really open mind about what you're going to encounter because you're going to encounter a lot of different stuff. And if you get too high centered on one thing, yeah. you're probably going to end up disappointed. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if you look at that river system and you think about it over the course of, you know, let's just call it three and a half months and let's call that three and a half months, June one to September 15. Mm-hmm. And just figure that that's, that's the season as a whole. And then you could probably narrow that thing down a little more and, and call it June 15 to September five. Yeah. And that's, that's probably the real prime float season most years and say somebody who put in intended to have an eight day flow, which is probably about average and say they decided they would do June 22 to 30. I'll just throw that one out there. Yep. They would encounter a multitude of opportunity and species within that 90 miles. It would start with grayling rainbows in pretty robust numbers, approximately the first, you know, 50% of the float. Um, Rainbow fishing would be anywhere from pretty good to really good. Mm -hmm. Those fish had ranged from 16 to 26 inches with an outside shot of something in that 26 to 30 inch range. Mm-hmm. They would catch them on mice. They would catch them on streamers. They would catch them on flesh. They could swing for them. Um, they could mouse. They could do all sorts of stuff. And the smart angler would approach it that way. As as they got down to the lower, the lower 30 miles really maybe the lower 22 miles, they would start to run into Chinook. Mm-hmm. They very well would see some higher, but they would for sure start seeing them at about 22 miles from the mouth. Okay. And they would start seeing them. And they'd see them roll or they might row over one or see one, you know, how they might even hook one swinging mm-hmm. a, a rainbow streamer. And as they got below... The uh, refuge, which is about the 13-mile mark, then they would start to see some runs that would really look and feel, you know, steelhead Chinook looking runs. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to swing flies would start to come really to the front of the class. And that would continue down to Quinnahawk. And, you know, at some juncture in that lower 13 miles, they would they would start to run into guides and camps, yeah. And of course, they'd be camping on sandbars and would get get extended evening shots, first thing in the morning shots, and would have some pretty good expectations 
of catching Chinook on the fly that particular period of time that overall would, would have provided them with a heck of a mixed bag trip. Yep. You know, if you think about those dates and you say, okay, June 22nd to 30, then you go July 1 to 8, um, you know, July 8 to 15, then, you know, the Chinook thing is still present, but chum salmon start to show up in, in pretty big numbers to go along with increasing levels of Dolly Varden. Mm. And of course those resonant rainbows that were there all the time. Yeah. So that's, that's, cool. you know, that's kind of a three week look at how that ball game would go. If you were DIY floating, if you, if you wished to get focused on swinging for Kings, you would, you would look into the guided camps there led by Alaska West, Dan Herrick's, uh, Daniki camp known as Alaska West, that Dave Duncan and Sons, yeah. Brad and Clint Duncan, and then uh, there's Real Adventures that's down in the bottom. Some boys from the east that have uh, set up a, a fairly successful camp in the Lower River. Um, I, I fished in Alaska West all those years and a few times with good old Brad Duncan at mm-hmm. uh, the Lower Duncan camp. Those guys also have a camp at Fox Bar, approximately 22 miles into uh, upriver into the refuge. Oh, wow. And they have some, consequently, some of the best rainbow dolly fishing to be found in the state of Alaska. So you got some choices, mm-hmm. be it, you know, for swinging for kings, rainbow trout stuff on that river through the guided route. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's a great summary of that because that's exactly what I wanted to think about was mileage. So we're looking at... Essentially, you get down the 13-mile range in there. You're really starting to get into the Kings, and and there's some camping. But, you know, while you're in there, so that was one of the questions. You have these lodges, but as you're going, let's say you plan a 10-day trip, and you plan three days for that lower, say, 13 miles because you really want to get some some Kings. So you could camp. It sounds like you can camp. Maybe there's lodges you don't want to camp, obviously, right next to them, but you could camp in that 13-mile range kind of wherever you wanted to on any bar. Well, typically in the high-water mark and – you know, you've got native land considerations that, you know, basically apply to, to um, you know, certain land holdings, tundra. But generally, high watermark sandbars are fair game in a general sense throughout most of Alaska. Not everywhere. There's some that you've got some, you know, more uh, stern land land ownership yep. holdings blah 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 but we won't get into that because we'll get drugged off in the weeds drift hook has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey their professionally curated fly fishing kits are crafted so you can catch more on your next outing each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos and easy follow guides I've got the Nymph box right here in my pack, and I've been loving this. They've got everything from the tiny zebra midges with a little flash or all the way up to their large go-to guide flies. This box has you covered for all conditions. And were you thinking Euro Nymphs? They got that covered as well. Beautiful Euro Nymph flies, all the key flies you need to get going, whether you're a brand new to it or a veteran, Drift Hook has the flies for you. Along with their nymph boxes, they have dry flies, streamers, and all the education to go along with all these as well. These are fly shop quality flies, hand tied and inspected before being carefully packed. 
neatly into these boxes. And Matt personally packs and prepares these boxes like he was tucking the kids in for bed at night. Cozy, comfortable, and just the right amount of love. Whether you're an experienced angler who needs to stock up on some flies or get a great gift for the family, uh, Drift Hook has you covered. Check them out right now. That's Drift Hook, wetflyswing.com slash Drift Hook, and use swing at checkout to get 15% off your next order. You support this podcast and small business by checking out Drift Hook right now. So, and basically, yeah, you could go down there on this trip and you could just, um, I mean, I guess you don't want to overlap too much with the lodges, right? You want to kind of find, but is that, a, is that an issue if say you really want to spend a few days down that lower section? No, and, you'd find your spots where you could tuck in yeah, you and, would. and set up camp and fish a given bar. And, you know, those fish are always moving. So, I mean, they, you know, Chinook, like any salmon as well as steelhead, you know, these fish are moving through. So, you know, fish that were there at eight in the morning, you know, at noon or maybe four to seven miles further up. And so you've always got fresh opportunity. And even though you fish that bar at, you know, from say seven to 9 a.m. and you, you, you know, you fished it in a traditional manner, you know, cast swing, step cast swing, yada, 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 there, there can be new fish in there every 20, 30 minutes, every hour, oh, every wow. eight hour period. Yeah. You know, it's typical anadromous stuff. Yeah. So, you know, you're never out of it. You, you, yeah. you may have fished it, but you're not out of it because it's a constant moving pattern of fish and tide and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's great. No. So that, that definitely sheds some light on it. And it does, is it typically that, you know, the lower you go down in the system, the connect talk or any of these other ones closer to the ocean, the more, the more fish, the more chance, the more hot these fish are going to be? Well, no doubt. The lower in the systems, the more tidal effect. And tidal effect in most, well, it depends on a given river. I mean, the Nushkak has got tidal effect that, that goes for 20-plus miles mm. of tidal effect. And monster tides with a giant one being maybe 20 you know, you could get a 22, a 24, 25 foot tide, which, you know, is, is pretty big. Mm -hmm. And believe me, those fish come on those. Um, particularly if you get a, you know, an onshore wind to go with it, you know, Katie bar the door because they're coming. And so you've got tidal consideration that will certainly push those fish in. And then, you, you know, you basically are, you know, you're, you're, you're waiting to see what's coming and they'll come on the front end of the tide, the high tide, the back end. And that will certainly be kind of, you know, the main, the main calling of any given day during Chinook season, particularly in a river system, let's call it the lower four to eight miles. If it's coastal, um, it's certainly prime time. Those fish, are very apt to bite. They tend to go, yeah, I'd probably characterize, I mean, this is an absolute, but I'd say the average Chinook entering a coastal river probably travels three and a half to seven miles before they truly stop. Mm. And they certainly eat the fly a lot better once they've stopped and held up in the run. 
but they'll certainly eat moving because they are just hyper aggressive apex, um, you know, critters of the race. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, that's where the action is, is generally in the lower end of these rivers, but you know, you could switch gears and look at an inland river in the, um, copper river district called the Gokana, which comes off the copper mm-hmm. and those fish have traveled X distance up the copper. They cut in on the Gokana. And even though those fish are far from saltwater, their emergence into their natal river, those fish are just as grabby once they've come out of that off-colored, All right. you know, huge ditch copper into the Gokana. It's in a way that river, the, the the copper, I realize I'm getting a little off the rails. Yeah, no, this is good. This is good. But you know, they come out of the copper, which is, you know, basically was the transition from the salt. They come into that clear water of the Gokana, and those fish are really mighty. You, yeah. you see the same phenomena off the Susitna in northern Cook Inlet, which has got a host of rivers that are clear flowing rivers into the glacial salt, um, uh, Susitna. And you've got a host of rivers. And yeah. once those fish come out of that mud and that silt and they come into those those clear flowing streams, those fish are ultra grabby. Yeah. Ultra yeah, cool. grabby. It makes sense. It makes sense because they're essentially these species, you know, they've evolved to these, these systems. So it'd be like a fish that is coming right off the ocean and it's turning quick probably versus a fish that has to go hundred miles, thousand miles inland. They're going to hold up till they turn, start turning because they have to, to, to be well, they're turning once, once their clock is started, because generally you, you take that connect talk, you take the alagnac. Yep. You know, when you get to the back end of that run, and if we say the, if we say the Chinook run on the connect talk, which is earlier than say the alagnac, um, you know, let's say it's a, let's just say it's a June one to July twenty, sort of fifty day deal. You get to that last twenty days, those fish are coloring up, oh, actually right. in the bay, and you could ki- catch a fish a hundred yards, um, you know, from where she's dumping into the Bering Sea, and that fish is totally colored up because his clock had started, and he was colored up. He was colored up because the clock was – he was on the clock. Yeah, they're wrong. They're, well, and he if you look at clock. that – Yeah, he's on the clock. If, he, if you look at the connect talk on this one, and like you said, you did that – you know, we talked rainbow, Chinook. If you were going to plan, you wanted to get fish mousing. You know, your top priorities are mousing, rainbows, and really hitting the Chinook good. And then if you get – you know, the grayling, all the other stuff is like bonuses. But if those are your two – when would you, what would be that window? Again, you got the tides and stuff, but you had to pick right now just to plan your flights and stuff. When would that be? Well, I would, I would look at June 15 to July 8th. Yeah. Would be the period. And depending on snowpack, which is, oh, right. You know, that's, you know, runoff in anywhere, anytime is always the great equalizer, right? Yeah, it could be high. It could be high on um, June fifteenth. Well, it could be high. It could be. It could be. You know, uh, there's years up there where it could be really high. It could be ungodly high June twenty, 
it could be shockingly low June right. 20. I've seen I've seen all variations and you just you know sometimes it pays not to get too high centered on dates and try to stay a little flexible and try to stay a little try to stay a little um you know pay attention and that's yeah. why you know, it's gonna. It's never an easy task to go play that Chinook Rainbow combo time. Oh, right. Because runoff could be the great equalizer, and hence that's why you see the vast, vast majority of people that float river systems in the state of Alaska, particularly in western Alaska. They do most of their floating in that June 25 to August 25 period. There's a reason for that, and that reason is stable, reliable river conditions, river levels. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you're taking eight, probably ten days total out of your life yeah. to go do a bucket list trip. Um, you know, frankly, David, what I would tell what I would tell the listeners, yeah, I would I would look at Chinook as more of a guided thing, and I would look at yeah. multiple species as a DIY or guided thing. That's, that's what I was just thinking. I was just thinking that. That's today's tip. <laughs> yeah, that's the tip. That's a good one that's because, I mean, Chinook tip. is, and probably people think is like, you know what, at the end of the day, if you do this trip and you go down there and you pound and just have an amazing trip for rainbows or whatever, and you don't even hit Chinook, right? You even miss it maybe. I mean, at the end of the day, doing a 10-day float in Alaska, I mean, that's the trip. Right. That's the trip. And and of course, there's always another year. Right. And that's so that's the way I would look at that. Oh, but yeah. I hear you. So if you want to do shit up no right, probably call Danicki, you know, call those guys and be like, all right, do that thing. And that might be the the more obvious thing if you really want to get Chinook. Yeah, that's what I would tell you. And if you want to be in the bucket and not kind of, you know, trying to explore the edges, that's what I would tell you. But, you know, you asked me a question. Oh, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, David, you asked me who oh, yeah. the original outfitters were. That's right. And, you know, Dave Duncan Sr. was probably, he was the first one on the Connect Talk. And he's he's got a he's got a wagon full of of sons, all of which yeah. are kind of my age. We kind of all grew up. You know, about the same time, Brad Duncan, Clint Duncan, the, those two boys, multiple other brothers, some of their sons, you know, those guys. And they originally called the river The Chosen. They didn't even call it its uh, proper name. Oh, wow. And Dave Duncan had done that in a, a, a well-founded attempt to just kind of keep this thing under the radar, which I would oh, tell wow. you – in, in the 1980s, he managed to do, and for a pretty good chunk of the 90s. Uh, the other original outfitter on there was a guy by the name of John Gary. And John Gary started Alaska West. He had a camp manager by the name of David Mueller, who kind of ran the camp. And David is a longtime friend of mine and kind of a modern-day Daniel Boone, if you will, both fishing and hunting, one of the more fascinating individuals I've met, ever been around, particularly in the hunting theater. Um, and so those two camps were the the vanguards mm -hmm. of the Connect Talk. 
And, you know, the Duncans, of course, are still operating at a very high level yeah. with two, two base camps, one below the refuge, one in the refuge. They still actively do guided flow trips, which are an excellent option and kind of play a middle ground in terms of cost between DIY and, and full guided camp. And then, um, uh, you know, Alaska West has got the the lower end camp is kind of the camp of the spay rod enthusiast. And so those, those are your OGs and John Gary sold Alaska West to Dale DePriest, who was the founder of Mission Lodge, who I guided for their initial year in 1985. And um, I believe it was in 2010, Dale sold Alaska West to Andrew Bennett, who founded Daniki, oh, which, right. you know, for a lot of people who know that name, and certainly for those who don't, Daniki had operations in Alaska, on South Andros Island, still there today, a little bit of activity in Chile, and uh, even BC West on the Lower Dean. Oh, wow. And then, oh, I forget what year it was. Maybe, golly, I just, I'm, I'm not remembering yeah. what year, yeah. but I want to oh, say nice. 2014. Um, Dan Herrig and Jerry Schultz um, took over the Taniki Holdings in all the places. And Dan Herrig um, uh, currently runs the Taniki Holdings, both in the Bahamas and in Alaska, namely Alaska West. And so there's your history. That's it. That's it. And and the Duncan, so Dave Duncan in that crew. So what year did they, do you have any idea when they first kind of opened that operation? I'm not positive when Dave Sr., started operations there i want yeah. to say you know brett you know if brad or clint hear this they, they would know we yeah, can they straighten know. it out but i want to say somewhere in that 1978 to 82 yeah period. late late 70s yeah. yeah and that was also kind of when things got rolling on the alagnac i got to the alagnac for three years as well yeah and i believe that 1978 80 was kind of when this stuff kind of got kicked off there's various other float operators on the Connect Talk. Uh, Bus Bergman from Florida was one of the, the early pioneers, you know, and a very unique individual that ran float trips in the summer, was a full-time tarpon guide in Florida, you know, in the Florida season, probably one of the more unique individuals with a unique platform uh, around today. There's actually a couple guys on the Kenai to follow suit with that nowadays. Josh Hayes of Alaska Trout Guides is one of the true messiahs of the Kenai who also guides Starpin in Florida. No, oh, nice. So there's a modern day addition in that and Josh Hayes. There you go, Josh Hayes. Perfect. We're getting some good good uh, connections out here. I always love digging in because I know people are listening here and they're they're thinking planning trips, right? So it's good to throw out some names. Um well, we're doing good here. I think uh, I haven't checked off a single question off of my list, so this is uh, this is going to be a little bit longer well, than we expected. Get, you better get rolling. <laughs> I think this happened last time. So 
Let's dig into the schnook. I want to keep it on the schnook because this is, um, you know, like we said, the kings. It's a it's a big fish. It's a, hopefully there's some still some big fish out there. But take us to the river. So you're down there. You're in those lower 13 miles of the connect talk. You're you're getting your gear ready. What what does that look like? I know you got the spay game. We could take it to the spay or the single. Um, let's talk about that for you personally. What does your gear outfit look like to catch? Well, I've come. I'd yeah. say approximately. Oh, goodness gracious. I'd say approximately 2010, I basically went full spay. I, I, I left the single-handers home. They certainly have their place, particularly from boats. Mm-hmm. They're very effective. In fact, they're ungodly effective, and we could have a whole chapter discussion on that, David. All right. Single but, versus single versus spay. Yeah, and it, it's largely the single-hand game is largely a boat game. Oh, um, really? Oh yeah, yeah, and it's it's a setup game, and it certainly has its its effectiveness. It certainly has its strategic initiative. Tell me this, George, because this is a, a you know kind of an old friend of of mine, and you know I'm sure you know him, but uh, Jim Teeny, right? So Teeny, back in the day, I'm sure he's fished all these rivers we're talking about. He always had, he was probably the most well known, at least in the that period, right, the '80s of the single handed rod, and he, he's he's and the Teeny and stuff. I mean, what was the style? What was he using? What are people using up there if they're going from the bank with the single handed rods for the space? obviously easier for those that know because you can get your grain weights and all that stuff lined out. But is the single-handed game for somebody that Roy only had a nine-foot rod and they were fishing from the bank, what, what would that look like? Well, we all owe Jim Teeny a boatload of gratitude in, mm-hmm. in the fly fishing theater in the Pacific Northwest. Jim started before anybody else. He's really the OG of OGs. He, he developed... I believe it was in 19, I want to say 83, he brought out what was called the Teeny Nymph Line, which was a series of sink tips led by the vaunted Teeny 300, mm-hmm. which is still employed to this day. Rio has got various sink tips that that fall into that theater. Uh, but, but Jim put that stuff on the map, and with that 300-grain sink tip, Steelhead fishing, Chinook fishing went from something that, you know, we certainly were doing. We were having, you know, some success. The the 300 grain teeny nymph line, which was essentially a 24 foot sink tip that weighed 300 grains. That thing on an eight, a nine, a 10 weight rod, single hander, nine, nine and a half, 10 footer, that thing revolutionized anadromous fishing in North America. It did so in sweeping fashion and nowhere was that seen in a greater demonstration than Western Alaska. For right. Sure. Right. And whether it was a guy on his feet waiting, you know, kind of in a traditional manner, somebody setting up shop out of a boat where they could really, really dissect the run, uh, you know, Jim, Jim led the way with that line. Um, yep. in, in that line, initially I've, you know, I was selling that line when I worked at Kaufman's and, um, it, there was a 300 grain, a 200 grain, then he would expand it to a 400 and a 500 and those four and 500 grain versions, which would later be available from Rio in a density compensated form, which was even better. 
um, those four and five hundred grain critters that you know you effectively would run off a nine, a ten, even eleven or a twelve weight. Those lines really got us down in the living room with Keen with with right. Okigi yeah. in such a way that you know our angling success, our proudness uh, went up leaps and bounds, right. David. So right. that's you know hats off to Jim. I, I usually talk to Jim once, maybe twice, if I'm lucky in a given year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to center our discussion on archery, elk hunting. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, he's a, yeah that's right. But, um, you know, Jim largely on the Connect Talk would stay in the mid sections of the river. I recall the first time I ever saw him in true tidewater on a Connect Talk. And I remember he he came by me in a boat, and I asked him what he was doing down in my big water with his little flies. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, so, his little teeny dips. Yeah, his little tiny teeny dips. Yeah, yeah. I asked him what he was doing down there, and um, because he was he was down in a you know a portion of the river where that method was probably going to not be near as effective as what we were doing in terms of fly type, fly colors, so on and so forth. But nevertheless, hats off to Jim Teeny. And a quick break for a word from our sponsor. The CRC system from Trestle provides secure, convenient storage for your fully rigged fly rods with unsurpassed gear protection. Every CRC system comes with secure mounting clamps, padding in the reel compartment, and their proprietary suspended rod liners. Leave your gear on the car full time or take the CRC system down and telescope it into carry mode in just a few minutes. I've got my CRC system fastened to the uh, Yakima roof rack of the car. I've got both right now. I've got both of my kids' rods sitting in there ready to go. They're all rigged up and ready, and it's one less thing I have to think about as we get ready for that next trip on the river. Every chance you get to make it easier and faster to get on the water will be one extra feather in your cap. Equipped with their patented protective no-snag reel-up design, this is not your average rod carrier. And carrying your rods with the reels facing up in the CRC system means more protection for your guides, blank, and reel seat. This thing is loaded, looks good, is clean. Uh, You can bomb down the road with your rods ready to go like we've been doing. And uh, it's time to check out Trestle right now and uh, and see what they have going. That's T-R-X-S-T-L-E. You support this podcast and a great small business by clicking through that link to Trestle. Okay, back to the show. So basically, if somebody wanted to um, do, I mean, yeah, the, the teeny that's still out there. There's Rio has some stuff, but there's plenty of single hand lines for kings right now. Oh yeah, I mean it's a sink tip game. Yeah, it's largely a nine or a ten weight sort of gig. You know, there were days back in the day when we would have a rod set up. We'd have everything from a nine to a twelve. We'd have a 200 grain sink tip, a three, a four, a five in the boat. We essentially had created the Chinook bass boat effect. Yeah. And we didn't change spools. We changed weapons. And it would be pursuant to, you know, tide level, uh, water level, you know, knowing that fish are stopped and they're in this particular run. This run fishes best with this. That run at that tide level fishes best with that, you know, so on and so forth as it relates to the single-handed theater. Now, the flies, 
David would not change. And really, Chinook Flies is probably a show of its own where, you know, if you really wanted to do it upright, you'd probably get Edward, Scott Howe, myself, get all three of us on at once and let us go at it. There you go. And, um, you know, I can think of it half a dozen other guys that could be in on that, but I think three of the three of us would be pretty good. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the colors didn't change regardless of whether you're swinging a, you know, a single okay. hand or, or a spay rod and in tidewater, as the gear guys like to say, if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth to that in, in tidewater, you know, shades of chartreuse, chartreuse and white, chartreuse okay. and Kelly green, which is one of my favorites, chartreuse blue, chartreuse yep. black. Those are gotcha. extremely good color sequences in tidewater. And the other one that's really good is purple. And it okay. could be straight purple. It could be purple, black, purple, blue, black, blue is another one. Um, you know, purple's got a distinctive reason why it's so good on Chinooks, why it's so good with steelhead. It kind of harkens back to those fish in saltwater, chomping on squid, blowing up squid, squid blow up purple ink. Right. Purple becomes imprinted. That stays imprinted. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it, when you look at the fly selection, let's take it lower river, kind of towards closer to the tide versus say upper river on the upper extent, maybe at mile 20 plus whatever. Are Is the color, are they changing or are you using that chartreuse fly everywhere in the connect talk? No, I kind of, as, as fish work, as Chinook work up river, they're, they're sight cones. And I'm certainly no scientist and even further away from a biologist but I can tell you there's been studies that have shown and proven that a Chinook salmon and probably anadromous fish in general, but certainly Chinooks, their, their, their eyesight, their cones, what they're able to see, what they can focus on changes as they advance in days and miles in any given system. And so river systems have fly favorites. In lower river systems, Chartreuse is absolutely positively going to be king of kings. Mm -hmm. uh, given river systems will favor other things. For instance, in Nushagak is a chartreuse, Kelly green, a um, orange red, a pink white, um, a pink orange sort of place. Mm -hmm. Purple, black, blue, not so much. Uh, you get on the sandy on the Alaskan Peninsula, which is really a guided only gig. Otherwise, the bears will mm. eat you. <laughs> um, that that one's a chartreuse, but also a very much a black blue. But once these fish kind of get, I would tell you, once they kind of get up river, say a couple of days, certainly within you know a week plus, I think they're they're visual changes in darker colors tend to have their day in court stuff like black red yeah uh, orange red black blue all black black purple um black red yellows just different stuff and i think fish in tidewater more bright flies and then darker as they ascend river systems and then some river systems just certainly seem to have favoritism 
to certain things. The Golcana is a good one for uh, pink and orange, uh, black blue, black purple, chartreuse black, the Alagnac, pure orange, pure pink, pink white, um, chartreuse blue, uh, you know, the Connect Talk, the Sandy. You know, a guy needs to have kind of an arsenal of flies, but that arsenal should probably begin with chartreuse and then kind of work towards darker hues. Gotcha. And flashing those flies is always good. You know, you can talk to Ed Ward. You can talk to Scott Howell, myself, um, uh, Mike McCune, any of the old timers that were guiding in the 80s and 90s, Deck Hogan. And we'd all tell you that a lot of what we employed fly fishing, we sorted out, took straight out of the gear fishing game. Right. Um, I, I learned more about Chinook fishing them with gear that set the table for me as a fly angler, uh, both as a guide and as a, you know, an angler. Yeah. And so we pay attention to what color those plugs are. <laughs> um, you know, what the, you know, is that a chartreuse with silver? Is that a, you know, a, a, a blue with silver? We, we paid a lot of attention to that. And there was a reason because that stuff was absolutely unequivocally proven. And so yeah, those color right. hues went into fly designs that, that, you know, are still prominent today. Yeah, that's perfect. And what is, what are some, I mean, you could tie on, probably make up any fly with those colors, but are there a couple of fly patterns that people, you we could search up on Google now? Yeah, Bjorn Beach's Super Prawn is certainly a, a longstanding king fly. And that the length of that fly varies from three and a half to six inches. Yep. Um, you know, the various and sundriest intruders and intruder oh, forms. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, tube flies, all that stuff, you know, falls into that. And the average Chinook fly, I would tell you, is is three to four and a half inches in length. And it's certainly gonna have a lot of swim to it. That those are, you know, the hallmarks of those flies. Yeah. Are they also going to have a little bit of of weight on the fly, or are you using more of the sinking lines for your weight? There's no such thing as too deep. Yeah. <laughs> they, so, you can, um, so you can get, you're on the bottom. You want this fly literally kind of on the bottom, down. The fish are on the bottom. Well, you're never on the bottom, David. The, the, yeah. the big misnomer, and this, you know, I probably ought to talk about this for the remainder of our chat today, is yeah. methodology. Yeah. You're, you're never as deep with these sink tips as you think you are, mm. there's no substitute for how a plug, a conventional gear plug or a pencil lead spin and glow sets up in terms of the depth that those lures and baits acquire. They are the most effective thing unequivocally because they will be in the heart of the zone. The swung fly really becomes a game of assessing water depth and likely holding places. In places where guys gear fish, generally speaking, will be a harder nut to crack with a swung fly because, you know, something like T14 or T17, those materials – those materials, David, sink in nine to 10 inches a second. And that sounds all well and good in terms of depth. 
except once that that swing that swung fly is engaged and actually is in the the method the format of swinging i assure you that that nine to ten inches that might have gotten you to you know off a mend or a secondary mend within the course of the setup that might have gotten you to six to nine feet is not prowling six to nine feet no. within the context of the swing so you know what what ed ward scott howe myself would all tell you is that instead of trying to fish the gear water is to go figure out the water where these fish will slide into will hold yeah. that we've got a reasonable chance of showing them the fly within the swing and you know, rivers like, you know, all Chinook rivers have got what I call pillow water. Hmm. And pillow water is where the channel kind of comes up, up onto a pillow where say, you know, just for argument's sake, say you're coming out of, you know, eight feet of water that comes up on a shelf that's, you know, maybe somewhere between three and a half and six foot depth. The fish come up on that pillow to rest to kind of chill, that's the water where the swung fly has its day in court. Mm, right. And, you know, consequently, one of the big misnomers in Chinook fishing with a fly, particularly for the wading angler, the spay angler, is that low water is more of an enemy than high water. Mm. Because low water will drive these fish virtually into the channels the channels will be the hardest places to engage them with a swung oh. fly. Higher water will produce more pillows and more resting spots. Right. And high water typically is better. Now yeah. we, t you know, but as in anything with anadromous fish, we prefer it not being too low and sure as hell not too high. Yeah. Right. Um, but there is kind of a, a range in there when that water in the month of June is is on the high end and is going to gradually drop out and those are when the conditions are generally the best yep. and the most magical days you know a guy will ever have are likely to be in that scenario right 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 gotcha so so when you're looking at the run so you're not fishing the deep super deep uh tanks where gear fishermen are you're fish finding well, those pillow, I could, be, pillow. I could yeah. be swinging into i could be casting into that based on just general distance and engagement right. but where i expect a fish to take is more on that inside or what i what i've referred to and this is a, a name i came up with i don't know 10 yeah. 10 12 years ago i call it the pillow water and it's that water that's that's that softer shallower stuff that's kind of off the deep and tends to be you see it a lot on corners Mm -hmm. um, and it's a it's a natural spot for Chinook to kind of duck into. Right. And they might duck in there for 30 seconds, 30 minutes, three hours, huh. and they basically kick it, and they stop. And yeah. when they stop, they're susceptible to a swung fly at a much higher level. And if they're in water depth where we can realistically get that fly in a visual, now we're talking. Now we're talking. Now, you know, just to, I realize I'm bouncing you all over, but yeah, yeah, it's great. You called, sir. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the boat thing with single handers became yeah. ungodly effective 
because you can effectively get the boat anchored basically on that transition water, you know, between Pello and Channel or deeper runs, deeper slots. And with those four and 500 grain sink tips, you could now fish the gear water. Yeah. Right. You could absolutely fish the gear water. Yep. And you're not going to do that with a spay rod at that level. So the, the art of the spay is as much, you know, about technique as it is, you know, basically finding the water that is going to put you in a position to show the fly to fish. Yep. Um, one of the greatest stories I ever heard, and I've heard a lot of great stories on my longtime friend, Ed Ward. Mm-hmm. But one of the greatest stories I ever heard told about Ed, he was on the Skagit one year, and he was on the Skagit a lot in his youth. And he was fishing a run that really was not, he was fishing a portion of a run that really wasn't the bucket. And I, I recall somebody, I, you know, I got told this story more than once, that somebody asked him why in the world he was down fishing in that water where there, nothing was in it. And Ed's response was, well, they're not in it yet. Right. And he was fishing, I, I know the spot, it's called the Mixer, it's on the Skagit, and he was in a portion of it where when the light would begin to drop in the afternoon going in the evening, those fish would tuck in there. They would come out of the deeper water. They might come out of a tail out and come up in that stuff. And they come up in it because it's easy living. It's easy swimming. Yeah. And so Ed strategically knew that he would have some targets of opportunity. And within that, he knew he could show those fish to fly in that water. Right. Well, that's, that's the cue card on this Chinook thing is to try to fish them where you can truly get at them yep. with the tackle you've chosen. Where you can get down to them. To go where with. You get, where yeah. you get down to them. What's the, going back to the gear a little bit. So if somebody was wanting to set up the spay game, what what would they, what would you use? What would they use? Like rod length, line, like that setup? Oh, a typical rig nowadays would be an eight and a half to 13 and a half foot rod. Eight weight, nine weight. I'm a nine weight fan, but um, you know, there's plenty of eights. You know, yep. the 8130 Sage X is an ex- excellent example. Okay, of a go-to Chinook rod. Um, you know, just stuff that's 12 and a half, 13 and a half feet, eight, nine weight. That's that's, good. that's the money. That's stay good. out of the sevens. Yeah, uh, the switch rods is Baby Spay eight nine weight. Switch rods, Sage's 9119 igniter is an excellent Chinook spay rod. It's 11 foot nine, so it's kind of baby spay, but it's sure. it's a magnum switch rod that plays that game. Cool. Um, cool. You're going to run a Skagit head. You're going to run various T14 or T17 sink tips, mm-hmm. you know, with 10 and 12 and a half feet being kind of the starting point. Maybe as short as nine and as long as 13. You're going to run a, a leader system that could be extremely basic. You could run 20, 20 or 25 pound Maxima Green or Rio Steelhead Salmon material. Um, you could run just one chunk of that. You could run 
48 to 54 inches of 25 pound. You could you could taper it where you go, okay, tie tie 27 inches of 25 pound to 27 inches of 20 pound. Mm-hmm. They basically have a slight taper in it. You're probably wondering, well, what in the hell does he mean by 27 inches? Well, most of my Chinook leaders on sink tips will run 48 to 54 inches total length. 54 inches divided by two is 27. Oh, gotcha. So if you're tapering it, that's that's where I'm pulling those numbers from versus some Christmas Eve out of my ass number. Yeah. <laughs> you're being scientific about it. I like that. What, what's the, um, is there any advantage, would there be any advantage of going even shorter on the tippet? Like, you know, to say 20 inches where you can get even more control. Uh, what would be the, the difference, right? The, like really short versus really long. Well, really long would be north of six feet. So 48 to 54 is relatively short. 36 would be as short as I'd want anything to do with. I kind of work on the premise that most of my Chinook flies are weighted, you know, be an intruder, super prawn sort of format with lead barbell eyes. Oh, right. So they are weighted. Yeah. Yeah, they're weighted. And I want some level of mono because I I still want a stealth approach with these critters. I'm not a big fluorocarbon fan on these these fish. I'm just not. But if you do go fluorocarbon, go even bigger than – you know, I'd be running 25 or 30 pound fluorocarbon if I'm running fluorocarbon for Chinook, which you won't see yep. me do. Um, I'm not, you know, I've got, I've got my reasons for what I'm fishing and I've seen some stuff with certain materials that tend to just hold up um, in a durability sense, a wind knot sense that just lend huge credence to the use of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, perfect. So that gives us the the rod, you know, the gadget, pretty standard stuff there, and weights um, of the of the sink tip, and and then presentation wise, David, which yeah, it's probably a good place to you know to wrap this up. Yeah, unless you want to spend your whole Christmas Eve listening to my dumbass. No, no, oh, I um, would actually, I would, but I think what we're gonna do with this, like the last one, George, is we're gonna get you back on to, to follow up because there's a lot of things we're leaving. So let, let's let's wrap it up here, and then we'll we'll follow up with you another one later on. But method wise. I'm a big advocate so that, you know, you're on your feet, you're facing the river, straight across from you is 90 degrees. Slightly below 90 is 80, slightly below 80 is 70, yada, 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 yada. Yep. Most of my cast will land between 70 and 80 degrees. Okay. So they're below straight across from me. They're on the downriver side of yeah. straight across. I will throw a large mend behind that. I'll try to throw that mend all the way to the back of that Skagit head. Sometimes I'll have a secondary mend to attempt to get a straight edge because as Ed Ward famously said years ago, the straight cast fish is best. And, you know, once in a blue moon, you'll have a fish eat when that thing has, you know, I've, I've had them eat it on the mend. You don't tend to land them very often, mind you. They tend to eat once the fly's engaged. And there tends to be, I would say, that that distance between 60 
and 50 degrees. Yeah, maybe even call it 65 and 50 is where most of your eats come from. Occasionally, you may get one. You know, if you made an 80 degree cast, you might pull one at 70 degrees. Yeah. Um, I realize we need a chart to really kind of put this in front of the viewers. But, yeah. No, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. This is good. Uh, but, you know, you don't want to overmend. There's some people mend, never mend more than twice okay. because you're screwing with your engagement range and your engagement coverage. Yeah. Um, you know, with Steelhead, right. you know, I was on the Clearwater. Again, I'm getting off the rails. Yeah, yeah. But I was on the Clearwater in October, and there were some runs where I would simply make a 70-degree cast. I wouldn't even mend because I wanted to fly engaged. But generally, you're mending to accomplish two things, acquired depth and straight-line swing, where that fly is swinging on a straight line, and that straight line is is neither straight across from you nor straight below you, but rather it's straight as it swings from, you know, let's call it 75 degrees to 45 degrees. It's straight because straight is producing a broadside profile right. of the fly. And that is critical. Broadside. There you go. That's a cool tip. Broadside profile. That is a, lo- a nice tip there. So what's the, and what is the eat just for like, if you haven't felt it, well, how is it different than a steelhead eat? Like when well, they you gotta let them like a steelhead, you better let them chew the gum. Yeah. Better let them chew the gum. It, and typically what transpires with a Chinook and you learn this from the gear game. Again, the gear game for most of us, you know, relatively old time Chinook guys, you know, the Edwards, the Scott Howells, we all learn this gear fishing is that Chinook will pick stuff up, they'll pick it up, they'll drop it, they'll pick it up, they'll drop it, they'll pick it up, hold it, turn. And if you if you think about that and you try to process that, you learn that as a gear fisherman, you would learn it with fish, with Chinook, that grabbed a plug, grabbed it, dropped it, grabbed it, dropped it again, grabbed it a third time, turned and that turn represented the actual takedown of the rod and gear guides will famously put rods and rod holders plug fishing because they essentially don't want to get in touch right. because yeah. they want it buried before yep. it's grabbed now if you look at that and you go well, well how does that translate to a swung fly well it translates perfectly because what that fish is doing, he's grabbing that fly, and sometimes they grab it the first time and they turn, and they basically bury your rod right out of the gate. More often than not, there's a grab drop, a grab mm. drop, a grab hold, and turn. And that turn is when your swung fly coming off your 13-foot spay rod, that spay rod is being violently grabbed in a, you know, a finned critter's attempt to take it away from you. And that is when you strike and you don't strike a moment before that because what those fish are doing is they grab the fly, they drop it, they grab it again, they drop it, they grab it a third time, and this time they turn. And yeah. when they turn, that's the berry, and that's a berry, whether it's a plug on a gear rod, a spin and glow on a steelhead drift, format for Chinook 
or a swung fly. And so let them chew the gum, wait till they truly eat. And the eat is the grab and turn. And more often than not, it's got a bump, bump take. Sometimes it's an immediate take. Sometimes it's a bump um, and then a violent takedown. But you've got to let them chew the gum. Chew the gum. Perfect. Well, and let's do, I got a quick two-minute drill for you here. We're going to wrap it up in two uh, quick questions so we can't go log of these. But So going back to the water, higher water, so you got higher water versus lower water. Are, in higher water, are, where are you fishing? Are fish coming close to the bank? Are they still in those pillows? What happens well, if you get? They're in the pillows. They're yeah. in the pillows. Yep. And higher water that's in a dropping format is ideal. Okay, ideal, perfect. And then, and then, is it the step cast? What, what's that look like? The the cadence is it kind of like yeah, steelhead step cast? It's huck step. Well, I, I typically what I typically do is I make my cast, and then as I'm stripping in to recast, I take my steps. So my strip in to reset myself for the next bay cast coincides with my step down, and if it's a run that I've got history with. I, I probably only take one step. Mm, if it's a yeah. step I'm new to or a, a slot I'm new to, I might take two or three uh, because I want to cover it and I want to see if there's a bucket. Every run anybody ever fishes in the Anadromous Theater, whether it's Sea Run Browns in Terra del Fuego, it's Steelhead in British Columbia, it's Chinook in Western Alaska, it's summer runs in Western Idaho. Every run's got a bucket. And if you don't know the bucket, you have to discover the bucket. And so, you know, that that should play into how many steps you take between casts. That's it. That's perfect. All right, George. Well, we're always uh, always good to catch up with you here. We'll uh, send people out. It's uh, State of Spay on, on Instagram. Yeah, I've got I've got two Instagrams. The fly fishing one is State of Spay, and my hunting one is called Mule Deer 16, Mule Deer 16. Yep. And um, I've got two of them. I kind of need two of them. And um, there you are, David. Love it. Love it. I'm going to I'm gonna follow up. The next one, uh, we're going to get you on a hunting. We're going to talk hunting because I know that's your other big love, so we're going to dig in. But, yeah, thanks again for all the time today. This has been amazing and uh, excited to uh, get this one out there, and we'll talk to you soon, George. Merry Christmas, David. All right. See ya. All right, sir. Bye-bye. So there we go. Making that landing into Anchorage Airport right now, dropping in. It's a nice, smooth landing, smooth day, clear skies, blue skies, snow-capped peaks, and we're getting ready to drop in and then hep on, and, and not hep on, we're, gonna, we're getting ready to hop on a commuter flight, and we're going to drop into a remote uh, town in Alaska, and then we're going to take a boat ride and drop into a remote canyon. How does that sound? That's That's the plan right here. That's that's part of the thinking. I hope that you have some trips that are similar to that. And I hope this episode helped you if you've been thinking about doing either DIY or just heading up on a road trip or maybe even doing the lodge trip. Hope this gave you a little bit of some tips to be thinking about as you prepare. Before we roll out of here, I want to give a listener shout out Bradley Stokes, hailing from South Carolina. Brad has been a listener and supporter of this podcast through the Members Society group. This is where we have some great members who have been supporting us along the journey, and they've been helping us plan and put together some of the stuff that we're doing now 
Uh, it's been a long time coming. So these trips now that we're rolling out this year, uh, big shout out to Brad and everybody who helped us get to this point. And, uh, and if you want to support this podcast, I mentioned at the start, one way to do it, that is through the member society, or you can click through our sponsors website anytime, check out their products. And if you make a purchase, you're supporting two great companies and one easy click. We're launching our big giveaway season next month. Next month, February, we are launching into the Euro School trip. This is a, a massive trip that we're going to be doing. It's going to be out to an amazing lodge, uh, pretty much the best Euro nipping guys in the country. Uh, people are there winning uh, gold medals. Uh, this is this is the stuff we got it coming here. So I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to bring this to everybody, and I'm excited to jump in on this trip and uh, and and see how this one goes. It's our first time going, but I found the success on doing these trips is all about finding the right um, the right people around as far as guiding and the lodging, getting the right spot. If you could bring those two together, the people, I know you and everybody else out here in this group is is the community is amazing, what we all love. So I know this one's going to come together. I, I hope you have a chance to check it out. We haven't launched it officially yet, but get ready for that. You'll be seeing an email if you're on our list and uh, and you can check us out there. All right, I'm getting out of here. I gotta, I gotta get the, uh, this ready for the next uh, episode here. So uh, I'm gonna head out right now. But if you want to check us out, uh, you can go to uh, wetflyswing.com anytime. And I hope you are having a great afternoon, a great evening, or a great morning wherever you are in the world. And I hope to talk to you very soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.